Well, hey, good morning, everyone. How are we doing? Good, good. Hey, do me a favor. If you have your Bibles open, can you turn them to 1 Kings 21? We're going to be in 1 Kings 21 this morning. We have people coming down the aisles right now that would love to get a copy of God's Word into your hands. If you would like, just raise your hands. We'll get that to you. And uh, man, I love that last song uh, we just sang. I love that first line, if my life speaks, then let it say that I glorified your name. And the interesting thing is, is it's one thing to come to church and sing songs. And a lot of times our uh, minds can be checked out or somewhere else while we're singing. But I do think we should really wrestle with that question. Do we want to be people whose lives are known for glorifying Jesus Christ? If that's you, say, I want that. Well, one of the ways we do that is by leaning forward to God's Word, and there's going to be so many amazing opportunities for us to respond to God's Word this morning. Um, We've been in a series that has really zeroed in on the life of the prophet Elijah. We've seen how God kind of called him out of nowhere. We see how God took him to school and, and did a lot of work in his heart in private before his public ministry ever began. We saw him have his mountaintop victory over the prophets of Baal on uh, the, the mount where God brought fire down from heaven. And we saw last week uh, him in a moment where he was vulnerable, where he's not doing well, where he was discouraged, maybe even depressed. And God meets him and is kind to him and walks with him even in his spiritual frailty. And uh, this week's actually going to be a little different because in 1 Kings 21, we move the focus off of Elijah and we really zero in on the enemy of Elijah, which was King Ahab, the wicked king of Israel, and his wife Jezebel, who was a priestess of Baal, a demonically inspired, maybe even demonically possessed woman. And uh, I just need to be honest with you, uh, my favorite type of messages to preach are stories from the Old Testament that many people have never heard of before. But because it's God's Word and all of God's Word is awesome, uh, there are so many amazing things for us today to learn from and to live out. And this week is one of those weeks. I think this is going to be a story that many of you might not be familiar with, um, but there are so many good things for us to hold on to. And uh, so the way this passage breaks out, if you have your notes in front of you, you see there's five scenes. So this story breaks out in five scenes, and attached to each of the scenes, I have written down what I call a pastoral tangent. And uh, I use the word tangent because in the moment that sounded better than rant, Um, but I'll let you guys kind of decide what it is. So we're just going to break through this story scene by scene, and then I've got a tangent to go off of, which is really applicable for our lives. So let's get right after it. First Kings 21, starting at verse 1. Here's what it says. It says, now Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard in Jezreel beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. And after this, Ahab said to Naboth, give me your vineyard that I may have it for a vegetable garden because it is near my house and I will give you a better vineyard for it. Or if it seems good to you, I will give you its value in money. But Naboth said to Ahab, the Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. And Ahab went into his house vexed and sullen because of what Naboth the Jezreelite had said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down in his bed and he turned away his face and would eat no food. All right, so here's the first scene in this story. We have a mopey king, don't we? Right? Ahab's in his palace, he's hanging out, and right next door to him is a guy named Naboth, and he has a vineyard that's beautiful. A really uh, cool um, side note, um, one of the coolest archaeological discoveries in Israel over the last 30 years is they found the city of Jezreel, and they dug to the time of King Ahab, and they have found King Ahab's palace, and guess what's right next door to it? 
a, a, a wine pressing thing where a vineyard would have been. It's one of the things where archaeology is, again, proving Scripture to be true and accurate. So Naboth owns this vineyard, and Ahab's like, man, this would make a great vegetable garden. The dude's into cucumbers and tomatoes. Good for him, right? So he goes to Naboth, and he's like, listen, give me your vineyard, and and I'll pay you in cash for it, what's fair value, or if you want, I'll give you one of my other vineyards, which are bigger and better. And on the surface, that seems very fair, maybe even generous, right? Like, do me a favor, raise your hand if the car dealership called you and and said, hey, you can trade in your current car for the brand new 2024 version of the same car for free. How many of you would do that? Right, I I do that, right? It seems like Naboth's getting a sweet deal. But Naboth's like, no, God forbids that I do that. And, And see, here's what's interesting. In Leviticus 25, when God lays out the law to the people of Israel, one of the things that God says is the promised land, it's my land. So the land you own, you can inherit it from your fathers, but you're not allowed to sell your land. You're not allowed to sell it for profit. So Naboth's like, listen, God says I'm not allowed to sell my father's inheritance. I would be sinning if I gave this to you. I won't do it. Then look at verse 4. I love this. Then Ahab went into his house, vexed and sullen, because Naboth the Jezreelite said to him, for he had said, I will not give you the inheritance of my father's. And he lay his head down on his bed. He turned his face away and would eat no food. He is going full six-year-old temper tantrum right now, isn't he? I don't want to eat. I don't want to look at you. He's moping around and he's mad because he is not getting what he wants. And again, here's the crazy thing. We already know he has better vineyards. He's the king. He has a palace. He has servants. He governs the nation of Israel. His life's pretty good. Okay, but this is what envy does to our hearts, doesn't it? It gives us selective amnesia. Ahab is forgetting all of the blessings in his life. He's forgetting everything he has, and he is locked in, focused on the thing he doesn't have, and it is turning him into the worst possible version of himself. And by the way, envy does the same thing to us, doesn't it? When we focus on that thing we want that we don't have, immediately we forget all of the good things that God has given for us and all of the blessings we have, and we turn into the worst possible version of ourselves. And and let me say this to you very clearly, church. This is a very dangerous spot to be. Ahab is in dangerous waters because when you are only focused on what you don't have and what you want, you make very stupid, short-sighted decisions that bring great heartache and pain to the people you love. We're going to see this play out in this text Uh, Mary and I have a phrase we teach our kids that says, we are thankful for what we have, not what we want. Ecclesiastes 5.10 says, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Listen, envy is a monster that is never full. It eats and eats and eats and eats. And Solomon says, listen, it's worthless to try to put your hope in what you do not have. All right, so here's my first tangent, and it's this. It's very, very simple and practical. Um, Here's what it says. It's invitation, not obligation. Invitation, not obligation. Some of you are thinking, Cal, what are you talking about? Well, it's interesting. We're at a weird point in the calendar in Michigan because I believe next week uh, when November hits, it really begins the holiday season. So the way that it breaks down in my mind living in Michigan is September and October is fall, right? 
And that can last for two months or it can last for two days, depending on the year. But that's kind of the fall time. And uh, November and December is the holiday season, or I like to call it happy winter, right? Where when it gets cold, when it snows, there's still like nostalgia and it's still cool because you've got Christmas and there's lights and there's time with family. There's all of the holiday stuff. And then January through March are the dark, sad months, right? So, so we're entering this holiday season. And what's interesting is, is earlier on in the church, Mary and I uh, were responsible for a lot of the uh, premarital counseling. So when a couple would get engaged, we would kind of do their prep for their wedding and their marriage. And one of our favorite questions to ask them, which always caught them off guard, is we would simply ask the question, hey, have you guys talked about your plans for the holidays yet? And this is how it would almost always go. The, 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 the girl would be like, oh yeah, we've talked about it. We're going to my folks' house. And the husband would be like, we are? Like, we didn't talk about this. And you would just see in that moment, the tension and the conflict start to arise. Because there's this thing about, about the holidays. And by the way, we see this in our soul care ministry. We see this in our 20s ministry. We see this in our small group ministry. There is an uptick in family conflict when the holidays come because people are trying to get together or because people have to get together. There is always an uptick in family conflict. So let me try to help. If you're here and you're older, and that means your kids do not live in the house with you anymore, when it comes to the holidays, have this rule where you invite them, but you don't obligate them for family holidays, right? Like, listen, if your kid who's in college wants to go to Florida with his roommate for Thanksgiving, you're going to live. It's okay. They haven't rejected you. They don't hate you. They just want to stink in suntan, right? Like, it's not the end of the world. Christmas will still happen. Thanksgiving will still happen. Your married children, listen are going to want to start their own holiday traditions. And that's actually a good thing that should be celebrated because that means they're actually leaving and cleaving. All right, but if you choose a heart of anger and frustration and guilt trips and throwing a fit because the holidays aren't on your schedule and what you don't want them to be, aren't you kind of looking a lot like King Ahab? Taking something that should be good and turning it into something that's miserable for everyone? Don't do it. People with kids in the house still, make this commitment now. Talk about it. Plan for it. Hey, we're going to be a family that is invitation, not obligation. See, guys, I love you. I just solved all of your holiday issues, right? You're welcome. Um, we're going to be great this year. Do not focus on the things you don't have because it will rob you of the joy of everything God has given you and everything God is doing in your life. All right, look at verse 5. It says, but Jezebel, his wife, came to him and said to him, why is your spirit so vexed that you eat no food? And he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money, or else if it please you, I will give you another vineyard for it. And he answered, I will not give you my vineyard. And Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now govern Israel? Arise and eat bread and let your heart be cheerful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth, the Jezreelite. All right, here's the next scene in this story. We see a backwards marriage. We see a backwards marriage. So you've got Ahab, who's acting like a six-year-old, throwing a temper tantrum. I'm not getting what I want. I'm miserable. And Jezebel comes, and she's like, why are you sad? Ahab explains his dilemma, and here's what she says. She's like, don't be sad. You're the king. I'll just get you what you want. She has no regard for God's law. 
She has no regard for what is right. She has no regard for Naboth. She has no regard for her responsibility to govern the people of Israel well. She has no regard for the fact that her husband's acting like a baby right now. She's just like, I just want you to be happy. I'll give you what I want so you stop throwing a pity party. They aren't discussing it. It's not a decision they're making together. It's almost like Jezebel is the mom who's doing what her spoiled child wants. And here's the tangent to go along with this. I need to remind you, church, the goal of marriage is holiness. It's not happiness. The goal of marriage is holiness. Now, I want you to hear me. I am happily married. Mary is my best friend. We love each other. Our marriage is full of fun and happiness. I want every marriage in this church to be happy and healthy. But our primary target in marriage is not just to make one another happy. Our primary target is that through our marriage, both Mary and I would be transformed to be more like Jesus Christ and that we would love him and serve him whatever he calls us to and whatever season he has us in. It's about Jesus. It's not about ourselves. Ahab is acting like a selfish baby and Jezebel is feeding right into his sin. So here's what's interesting. If God wants to transform us to be more like Jesus, the truth is you know more about your spouse than anyone else on this earth. And that means you are one of God's primary instruments in shepherding your spouse's heart and being a transforming power in your spouse's life. That every once in a while, we might have to forfeit moments of happiness because the better thing is to sanctify one another, that we grow in Christ. So let me be very, very transparent and practical. This is how it plays out in our marriage. Um, my wife, Mary, she is the kindest, sweetest person I know. She's got a million strengths. One of her weaknesses, she easily falls into the trap of people-pleasing, right? She wants to make people happy. When people are upset with her, it really bothers her. And, and so she can spiral in her thoughts, be way, way, way too concerned about um, making people happy. And she can even sometimes sacrifice the right thing because she's worried people are going to be upset by it. So what I have to do from time to time is I'm going to have to say, hey, Mary, are you falling into the trap of people-pleasing? You're making poor decisions, and I think you're being led by other people's opinions of you, not what you should do or what's right. And here's what I'll tell you. In that moment, she's not happy with me, right? She doesn't love to hear it. But because I love her and I want the best for her, I've got to sacrifice some, a moment of happiness. There might be a moment of conflict, but it is for her good and it's for what's best. Right? My issue, one of my issues, shockingly enough, stunningly enough, is I can be needlessly bold and combative on things. And I'm a high justice person. So here's what that means. Little things can bother me way more than they should. And so guess what my wife says to me often? Hey, Cal, this is a two out of 10 issue. It's not an eight out of 10 issue. You don't need to go to war over this one. You can cover this one in grace. You can let this one go. Just choose not to make it an issue. And in that moment, like, it drives me nuts. But she's doing it because she loves me. And her goal for me is not just to make me happy and get whatever I want or do whatever I want. She wants me to be a better follower of Jesus Christ. Can I ask you a question? What's the goal of your marriage? Do you have a target because what our world is going to tell you is just be happily ever after. The truth is that's going to lead to very backwards and very unhealthy marriages. All right, let's keep going. The next scene we're going to see is a terrible injustice. Look at verse 8. 
So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal. And she sent letters to the elders and leaders who lived with Naboth and in his city. And she wrote in the letters, proclaim a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people and set two worthless men opposite of him and let them bring a charge against him saying, you've cursed God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. And the men of his city, the elders and the leaders who lived in his city, did as Jezebel sent word to them. And it was written in the letters that they had sent to him. They proclaimed a fast and set Naboth at the head of the people. And the two worthless men came in and sat opposite of him. And the worthless men brought a charge against Naboth in the presence of the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside the city and stoned him to death with stones. Then they sent to Jezebel, saying, Naboth has been stoned. He is dead. And as soon as Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise and take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you money for, for Naboth is not alive, but is dead. And as soon as Naboth heard, or as soon as Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. All right, so this is a really, really rough scene. So what Jezebel does is she concocts a plan that's like, hey, let's just bring Naboth up on false charges where we're going to say that he cursed God and cursed the king, which was a capital offense. We'll get some people to lie about it and we'll get him stoned to death. And she writes to the elders of Israel and they do what she says. By the way, church, I just want to give you a reminder. This is how messed up things were in Israel. Like no one cared about the truth. No one cared about honoring the Lord. No one cared about what was right. It's let's just get what we want. Let's do what's best for us. And Naboth, this innocent man who turned down a deal that would have helped him financially because he wanted to honor the Lord, he ends up being murdered, stoned to death so that, a so that Ahab can have a vegetable garden. All of this is over some tomatoes. No fear of God, no concern for what's right. But I want you to look at verse 10. Here's what she says. She goes, and set two worthless men opposite of him and let them bring a charge against him. So there's something very interesting in the text. The wording here is interesting to me. So here's my next tangent. What makes a man worthless? It's interesting that the Bible says, hey, let's just get a couple of worthless men and have them do our bidding. Can I ask a question? Can we be honest in church? How many of you struggle with the idea that the Bible just called some men worthless? Anyone have issue with that? Raise your hand. Be bold right now. We're in church. You can be honest. Yeah, some people are like, I'm going to raise it like this because I don't know what to do, but I'm uncomfortable with this. Well, let me explain. No one is worthless when it comes to value. All of us have eternal value and all of us have value in us because we are created in the image of God. They're not talking about created value here when they call someone worthless. Here's what they're saying. Um, these men were worthless in character. So even though we all have created value that, that gives us value before God and we should view human life as precious because we all have value, you can be someone who is worthless in character. That's what Jezebel is saying. Find someone who has no moral compass and let them do our bidding. So from this text, throw up the next slide. What makes these men worthless? Well, they were dishonest, weren't they? They had no problem lying. Like Naboth did not curse God. In fact, he was trying to honor God. Nope, that's what he said, right? They have no integrity. They only care about what's good for themselves, right? It doesn't matter what happens to Naboth. It doesn't matter that he didn't do this. They probably got paid off. They probably now have a special favor with the king and queen that they can use later because they had Jezebel's back. They're just self-seeking. They go through life only concerned with what they want and what is best for them. There's no remorse over their actions. 
They never come clean. They never repent. They do something wicked and evil and lie and they get away with it, or so it seems, and they're cool with it. Do you know people like this? And then here's the last one. They turned a blind eye to injustice. And I want to talk about this for a moment. Um, Micah, another prophet in Israel, he tells the people, here's what God wants you to be more than your sacrifices. He wants you to be a people who do justice, who love mercy, and walk humbly with God. And um, here's what I would say. More and more, I am feeling like there are so many things going on in our world that is so much bigger than what I have control over or authority in. Right? I think about what happened in Maine this week. Gut-wrenching heartbreaking. I think about what's going on still in Ukraine. I think about what happened in Israel and and that conflict. And I'm like, man, I can pray, but that's about all I can do because this is so much bigger and so much greater than, than what I have control over. Okay, but I need you to hear me, church. God has given all of us spheres of influence and things that we can have influence and control in. And in those things, we better not turn a blind eye to injustice. Like, I know there are many men in our church who, because they follow the Lord and they want to be honorable men, they have conversations that go like this. Hey, dude, you have 24 hours to tell your boss what you're doing, or I'm telling him. And I'm going to let you go confess, because I think that's going to be better for you, but I'm not allowing you to get away with stealing from our employer. It's wrong. You've got 24 hours to confess. I've sat in rooms with men where it's like, hey, you've got 24 hours to tell your spouse about your affair. And um, I'm not going to allow you to get away with it. I know it's going on. This is ending, and you can hate me for it, but you have 24 hours to confess yourself, or I'm doing it. We don't get to just sacrifice what is right or what is just because we want peace in our lives. Proverbs 21.6 says this, The getting of treasures by a lying tongue is a fleeting vapor and a snare of death. The violence of the wicked will sweep them away because they refuse to do what is just. The way of the guilty is crooked, but the conduct of the pure is upright. Like, listen, there are people in this world who only think about themselves, who will do what is wrong if it profits them. And what Solomon says is it's a fleeting vapor and it's a snare of death. So men, can I ask you a question? How would God's word describe you? Do you live with integrity? Do you have a commitment that is greater than yourself? Um, Ladies, I think there's a good warning in this text. Do you notice how easy it was to find these two worthless men? Jezebel didn't have to look very hard, right? She's like, just find a couple of the worthless guys. They'll do our bidding. You know why worthless men are easy to find? Because they have nothing else going on. Right? Men with integrity have um, families and they have jobs and they have responsibilities and they live with integrity. It is way easier, ladies, to find a worthless man than it is a man who is godly and with integrity. And the only thing worse than being a worthless man is being married to one. Amen? (laughs) Being cute and being nice cannot be the bar that you settle for when finding a spouse. That's all I'm going to say there. Parents, what trajectory are you setting for your kids? Are you just yielding to their sin bends, getting them what they want so they'll be happy, or are you growing integrity in them? All right, let's keep going. Look at verse 17. It says, Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down and meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. So right now, Elijah enters the story. 
and says, behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth. I love that. So like he doesn't even leave the vineyard before God is bringing Elijah. And Elijah's gonna come in here spitting fire. Look at verse 19. It says, and you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, have you killed and also taken possession? And you shall say to him, thus says the Lord, in the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, shall dogs lick up your own blood. And Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I have found you because you've sold yourself to what is evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and I will cut off from Ahab every male, bond or free in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, and like the house of Basha, son of Ahijah, for the anger to which you have provoked me and because you have made Israel to sin. And, Je- and of Jezebel, the Lord also said, the dog shall eat Jezebel within the walls of Jezreel. Anyone belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dog shall eat, and any of his who dies in the open country, the birds of the heaven shall eat. Okay, this is pretty fair. It's a difficult word, is scene four, right? Like Elijah comes in, and here's what he says. He's like, hey, Ahab, it's ending for you right now. Your wife is going to die in this city, and she's going to be eaten by dogs. And your house is going to be cut off. It's not going to exist anymore. You're going to be eaten up and licked up by dogs when you're dead in the same place where you killed Naboth. And if your family members die in the country, the birds are going to eat them up and you are done. Like Elijah's coming in like a tornado. Look at verse 21. This is really interesting. It says, behold, I will bring disaster upon you. I will utterly burn you up and will cut off from Ahab every male bond or free in Israel. Um, It's interesting. Verse 21 is an Old Testament depiction of hell, right? There are two consistent things we see about hell when Jesus teaches about it or when we're taught about it in scripture. The first is isolation, that you are all alone, that you have no friends, that you have no allies, that you are cut off and alone. And then the other consistent description is this idea of an eternal fire, a lake of fire, a burning, an unquenchable fire. So what God is saying is he's like, hey, Ahab, I am going to send you to hell. So a couple things I want you to see here. Elijah comes in prophesying to Ahab and Jezebel. He's saying destruction is coming. It's going to be violent and it's going to be extensive. Here's my tangent. Here's the first. Um, God sees. And this should serve as both a warning to some and an encouragement to others. But listen, Ahab and Jezebel didn't get away with murder, right? They, They might not get punished for it by law in Israel, but God saw what happened. Nobody gets away with anything. We serve a God who is perfectly just, and all sin against God and against others is handled and punished. A passage that I often share with people, this is probably my life passage. It's been the most important piece of God's word in my life, definitely over the last five years. It's Galatians 6, 7 through 9. It says this, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows from the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. I love this. Verse 9. And let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially those who are in the household of faith. I love verse 9 because here's what I feel like so often. It can be so easy to be like, God, I'm trying and I'm hanging in there. But but people are getting away with stuff. and people are, are lying or, or this is happening and there's injustice in this world and there's so much going on and God's like, no, no, don't give up. 
Do what is good. I am a God of the harvest. And if you reap righteousness, you or you sow righteousness, you're going to reap a good result. Listen, Ahab and Jezebel are reaping what they have sown. And that should encourage us that when we are mistreated, hurt, and sinned against, God is not absent. He sees, he judges, and he will make all things right. It might not be until we are with him in glory, but there is real reward for faithfulness, even when life seems unfair. This should also serve as a warning. We're not getting away with anything. That's why we need to be people who live in the light. That when we sin, we're quick to confess. We're quick to repent. Listen, as a people who our faith is one that we are sinners saved by grace, it always blows my mind how, cool, how slow we are to admit that we're sinners saved by grace. I hate it when practically we can't admit when we are wrong, but don't you feel that in your own heart? Like, man, I hate telling people that I'm wrong, but we have to be good at that because, listen, God is not mocked. We don't get away. We don't hide anything. Okay, here's the next thing I want you to see from this scene. Um, Hard conversations are unavoidable. Hard conversations are unavoidable. I want you to see this. Elijah is just doing his job. He's serving the Lord, being faithful, and he has to proclaim judgment on the king and queen. And again, don't miss that Elijah is putting his life in danger again, right? Ahab and Jezebel, they just murdered a dude because they wanted a a vegetable garden. Naboth is uh, dead because he owned a piece of property that they wanted. Now, Elijah is condemning. He is cursing the king, but he's doing it because the Lord has called him to. Church, listen to me. We often have this false perception that as we grow in Christ and as we are more mature in Christ, that means our relationships are going to get easier and everyone's going to like us because we're more holy. It's simply not the case. If you look in Scripture, as people follow Christ, as people mature in Christ, a lot of times that leads to more conflict. Talk to anyone who's followed the Lord for a long time. They will tell you that hard conversations are a part of following Jesus. It might be with your parents. It might be with your kids. It might be with coworkers. It might be in Christian community. But oftentimes, following the Lord is going to lead to conflict. And look at me. How many of you here really hate conflict? Let's be honest. Raise them up. God's going to be with you, even in conflict. It's okay, and God often uses the things we hate most to mold us and to shape us to become more like Jesus Christ. I had a conversation with a friend of mine this week. Um, They have a choice to make. There's something going on in their life where they have to make a choice. They can choose to have a really difficult conversation, which is for sure going to lead to real conflict, or they can say nothing, they can be quiet, and they can let injustice happen. And he was talking to me about it, and he's like, Cal, you know, just pray that I have the courage to say the hard thing. And I had to remind them, like, listen, conflict is not a character flaw. Sometimes it is a necessary part of following Jesus. We see this in the life of Elijah. All right, look at verse 25. Let's see how this ends. It says, There was none who sold himself to do what was evil in the sight of the Lord like Ahab, whom Jezebel, his wife, incited. He acted very abominably in going after idols as the Amorites had done, whom the Lord cast out before the people of Israel. Do you see how that's in parentheses in the text? Here's what God's doing. He's just reminding us, Ahab and Jezebel are the absolute worst. There's been no one like them in Israel who have been more wicked. They are the bottom tier of people in Israel. But then look at verse 27. 
It says, and when Ahab heard those words, he tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his flesh and fasted and lay in sackcloth and went about dejectedly. And the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, have you seen how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the disaster in his days, but in his son's days, I will bring disaster upon his house. Okay, here's the fifth scene. It's a really unexpected ending. So Elijah casts judgment on Ahab, and it says that Ahab responds with repentance, that he's sad, that he puts on sackcloth, which was really uncomfortable and ugly clothing, which was an outward depiction of that your heart is sad and uncomfortable because it's broken over sin. And it says he responds with repentance, and what does God do? He actually brags about Ahab to Elijah. He's like, have you seen my boy Ahab, how, how he's turned and how he's humbled himself and how he's broken over his sin? And he goes, because he did that, I'm going to relent from the disaster I just promised, and I'm going to hold it back one generation. So Ahab is wicked his whole life, has this one moment of turning and acting sad, and God is moved by his repentance and relents on his disaster. Again, another honest moment in church. How many of you are struggling with this? Like, I don't like this. Raise them up, be bold. It's a lot of us, right? Well, if you raised your hand, there's good news and there's bad news for you. Here's the good news. You're not alone in feeling like this. There's another prophet in the nation of Israel named Jonah. Remember the story? God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah tries to run away because he hates the people of Nineveh. God has a fish swallow him up, spits him up out on the shore. He goes to Nineveh, and guess what his message to the Ninevites are? hey, God's going to wipe you out. He's going to destroy you. He just proclaims judgment. And the people of Nineveh, the Assyrians, God's enemies, they do the same thing as Ahab. They repent and they put on sackcloth and they mourn over their sin. And there's this revival that happens in their city. Well, after Jonah's done preaching, he goes up and he sits on a hill because he wants to see God destroy the city, but God relents from destroying the city because of their repentance. And Jonah's like, I hate this so much, God, I just want to die. These people are the worst, and if you're going to save them, it's not worth living. So the good news is you're not alone in feeling like this. Here's the bad news. Who are we in this story? Like, find yourself. Are we Naboth, the innocent guy who didn't do anything wrong, who was unjustly killed? Well, you're sitting here today, so you're not him. Are we the worthless men? I hope not. That's the question between you and the Lord. Are we Ahab and Jezebel? I think we are. Aren't we the ones who were enemies of God, who rebelled against him, who lived selfishly for our own name and for our own glory, that God, because we turned from our sin and we repented, he gave his son for us, gave us eternal life, offered us salvation. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Aren't we the enemies of God that God has shown great mercy towards? Here's what you need to understand, church. Here's why I love this story. 1 Kings 21 is a picture of the gospel. You have a guy who does not deserve God's grace, who was an enemy of God, who was full of wickedness, and yet there is nothing that brings God glory like when sinful hearts return or turn from their sin, repent, and are broken. And it moves the heart of God, and he runs towards grace. So here's my last tangent of the morning. Does God's grace offend you? I think it's easy for us as Christians to love God's grace when it's directed towards us or towards our kids or towards our friends or, or the people that we believe deserve it, the good guys. 
But when the unjust, when the wicked, when the bad guys, when the people that have hurt us and wounded us receive God's blessing or God's grace in their life, it bothers us. And the problem is, is that sounds a lot more like work salvation than it does salvation by grace through faith. Amen? So here's what I want to say. If you struggle with people who have hurt you receiving blessing and grace from God, you're not seeing yourself clearly. Listen, nobody is too far gone for God to save and redeem. I don't care how you have come in this morning. You can't be worse than Ahab. I don't think anyone's murdered someone in here for a fruit garden or a vegetable garden. And God is quick to show grace. No one is too far gone. We need to be people who live with a deep hope for God to redeem lost people. We need to be wildly for grace. It's kind of a turn at the end. You've got a guy who deserves wrath, who deserves damnation, who deserves punishment, and God relents at the moment of repentance. And we as people who've received this same grace, we have to be so cool with that, right? All right, so here's the homework for this week. I'm going to give you some really difficult homework. And again, it's not me that's giving it to you. It's Jesus. But here's your homework. Um, You need to pray for someone who's hurt you this week. I think it's really hard to stay bitter towards someone you're praying for. And if we're going to be gospel people, if we're going to be people motivated by grace, then we need to be praying for those that have hurt us. And listen, this is what Jesus calls us to do. Jesus says in Matthew 5, you've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. Listen, God gave himself for us when we hurt God when we rebelled against God, when we sinned against God. And so what Jesus calls us to do is he calls us to do the tough work to being like, hey, we have got to be a people who are for grace. And that begins in our conversations with the Lord. And here's what I would ask. You probably have in your head, if you're like me, someone where you're like, I know what name I should write down, but I really don't wanna write down that name because I really don't like that person. So I've got to come up with someone who's like offended me less that I I can kind of use his name instead. Don't do that right now. If the Lord has put someone on your heart, write that down on your notes and and believe that that is the Holy Spirit convicting that God wants to transform your heart and how you view grace by praying for that person. It might be a prayer of God, would you please, please restore what's broken? Or, hey, God, would you please convict of sin? Hey, God, would you please just move in that person's life? And I might not have any ability to change it, but you can. Are we a people who pray for those who hurt us? I think 1 Kings 21 is a great invitation for us to be grace people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, today. I thank you for this church. I thank you for all that you're doing in our hearts, God. And what a convicting passage. What an awesome study of your word and how you love and redeem and save. And you have a heart that is moved by repentance. May we not believe that we are saved because we are good or righteous or on the right side of things. May we always remember that we owe everything to your grace. We love you. Would you help us? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.